0: Good morning. If you have your Bibles, you want to turn to Luke chapter 19. Luke 19, we're going to look at the triumphal entry, the traditional Palm Sunday message. Luke 19:28 to 42. Let's ask God to guide us. Father God, as we turn to your inspired and errant word, We ask that you would use it to impact our lives, that it would cause us to desire to worship you more, to worship your son, to be guided by your spirit in the midst of worship. We ask, Father, that you would allow the text to come alive for us. It's in the name of Christ we pray, amen. Coronation celebrations can be quite elaborate. I think of June 2nd, 1953. It was the coronation celebration of Queen Elizabeth II, who is still on the throne, the 39th monarch of the United Kingdom. In her particular case, it took place in Westminster Abbey. And in fact, since the Battle of Hastings in 1066, every English coronation has taken place in the abbey. For her particular coronation, the processional preceded the service. Now the service was three hours long, and some of you think I preached for quite a while. But prior to that was a processional through the streets that took a number of hours. It was on the royal coach, which is made of gold. Can you imagine going through that, being pulled by eight horse? The security had 42,000 personnel. We had 3,700 from the Navy, 16,000 from the Army, 7,000 from the Air Force, 8,000 from the police. 7,000 reservists, all to bring protection for this particular processional. It would be listened to or watched by 38,000 people in the United Kingdom. Worldwide, it was the most first time watched event in television history. There would be 2,000 journalists, 500 photographers, 92 countries would allow this coronation to come into their land for them to watch it. The Queen's personal attendance numbered 250. I have never had an attendant even for one day in all my life. She had 250 on that particular day. They crammed 8,251 people into Westminster Abbey. I don't know if you've been to Westminster Abbey. It's an incredible place, but it doesn't hold 8,251 people. I have been to church there on three Sundays. The average Sunday was under 51 Sunday, just slightly over 50 the second Sunday, and about 150 on the third. So for three Sundays, they had a combined attendance Of 250 people, they crammed in 8,251 people for the coronation of Queen Elizabeth. That day she wore three historical crowns. The processional through the streets, she wore the crown of George IV, his diadem, with 1,333 diamonds, and 169 pearls. She wore George, or excuse me, Edward IV's 1661 crown when she was crowned queen. That weighs about five pounds of 22 karat gold and has 444 special emeralds and rubies and diamonds within it. Then when she went back to Buckingham Palace, her Home, she wore the imperial state crown. Throughout the day, she wore multiple dresses, every one of them sewn with thread that was made of either silver or gold. She was given the orb, which tells us that she was the ruler over the world. She was given the 1823 marriage ring that says that she is now married to the throne of England, and she was given the scepter. And I've only given you a few of the details. There is way beyond that that took place June 2nd, 1953, the coronation of Queen Elizabeth II. Compare that to the rather Spartan coronation of Christ in today's text. I want to pick up and read from Luke 19. I want to read verses 28 to 40. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany, just outside of Jerusalem, at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples saying, go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? Why are you stealing? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, They spread their cloaks on the road, and as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice. They praised God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen. They said, "'Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest.' And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, "'Teacher, rebuke your disciples,' and he answered and said i tell you if these are silent the very stones would cry out the text describes a rather spartan coronation celebration but rest assured there have been and will be a number of incredible coronation services for jesus according to luke 2266 right now he sits on the right-hand side of the throne of the Father. Now, if you think about Isaiah 6 and Revelation 4 and 5, we know that there are the cherubim and the seraphim, and there are the four living creatures, and elders and, and angels are falling down, and they are crying out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory, and that will continue for all of eternity. And we know from Scripture, from 1 Thessalonians 4, 13-18, that he's coming back. He's coming back just as he ascended in Acts one 11. He's coming back. And the text says the dead in Christ shall rise first. And then we who are left behind shall join him. And he will again sit at the right-hand side of the Father in heaven. And then we will have here on earth the great tribulation. Revelation 6-18. to 18 where there will be 21 judgments poured out on humanity, seven seals and bowls and trumpets, a time of incredible torment. And then Jesus will come back to earth, Revelation 20, and he will reign physically, victoriously here on earth. In Jerusalem, he will reign on the earth. And Satan will be bound for a thousand years and he will reign victoriously. And at the end of a thousand years, Satan will be released and he will garner an army like the sand on the sea and he will be destroyed. And he will be cast into the lake of fire forever and ever and ever. And then we come to Revelation 21 and 22, the new heaven and the new earth. And we will have yet again a great coronation of Jesus as king, king of kings, lord of lords. But here in this text, it's Spartan. It's Spartan at very best. The text tells us that Jesus goes up to Jerusalem. That doesn't surprise us. Jerusalem is 2,600 feet above sea level. You can only go up to Jerusalem. Whatever direction you come, you have to go up to Jerusalem. And as they're going up to Jerusalem, Jesus turns to his disciples too specifically. And he says, go into the village. And there you will find a colt, one that has never been ridden before. Bring him to me. And if they ask, why? Just say, the Lord has need of it. And we know what happens. The two guys go in. It sounds a lot like colt rustling to me, doesn't it to you? You just can't walk onto somebody's property and and unhitch their animal and start walking away. And so verse 33, the owners say, hey, what are you doing? And they quote Jesus. A great quote, but I would have added to it. They said, the Lord has need of it. I would have said a little more than that. I would have said, the Lord has need of it. And by the way, he already owns it. Doesn't he? Psalm 24:1 The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Psalm 50:10 and 11 For every beast of the forest is mine. The cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all the moves and all that moves in the field is mine. Jesus owns it all. Colossians 1:16 Which, by the way, was a hymn that Paul took and actually put into the text. The church sang this before Paul wrote it as his inspired scripture. Colossians 1.16. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. I fancy myself as an owner. Maybe you fancy yourself as an owner. The Bible says, as Christ followers, we are not owners, we are stewards. He owns it all. We steward what He has. And I've got to constantly ask myself does the Lord have need of it? And if so, we graciously give it back to the Lord. I need to get this. You need to get this. He owns us, He owns our time. He owns our talents, he owns our treasures, he owns it all. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Kudos to the people who were stewards of the animal. When they were told the Lord had need of it, they sent it on its way. Well done. Now part of what the text is about is the fulfillment of Scripture. You know from the Old Testament, the book of Zechariah. It was written from 520 to 518 BC. It was written 550 years before this event. It tells us that one of the signs you're looking for when you find the Messiah is he is going to ride an animal that has not been ridden before. Let me read Zechariah 9.9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. That is Jerusalem. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Zion is Jerusalem. Zion, Jerusalem. You got parallelism. Behold, your king is coming. He's talking about the Messiah. Behold, your king is coming to you righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey on the colt, the fowl of a donkey. So this is a messianic Symbol. This is the fulfillment of scripture 550 years earlier. But it's more than that. It's also Davidic. In 2 Samuel chapter 16, King David rides on a donkey that hasn't been ridden before. And what is Jesus? He is the new David. Isn't that what Matthew 1 is all about? Have you ever looked at Matthew 1 and it says, there are 14 generations... And there are 14 generations, and there are 14 generations. And then you compare the names to all the kings, and you say, wait a second. Man, Matthew's really, really not good at this. He, he left out a bunch of generations. He did. Why? Because he needs 14. Aleph, Bait, Gimel, Daleth, D, He Va, V, David, D, V, D. Four, six, four. Four plus six is ten, plus four is fourteen. Fourteen generations, fourteen generations, fourteen generations. What is Matthew 1 telling us? He's not telling us how to count back to the beginning of creation. If you use genealogies that way, it's not correct. It's not what he's telling us. He's saying, Jesus is the new David. Jesus is the new David. Jesus is the new David. He fulfills scripture by riding on a colt because Zechariah said 550 years earlier he would. He's on that colt to let you know he is Davidic. He's got kingly blood coursing through his veins. He is the new David. And Zechariah 9.9 also says that he is humble. The Hebrew word on knee it means gentle. Aren't you glad Don't you praise God that the king of kings is gentle? If we got what we deserve, we would be utterly destroyed. Our sin demands death. It demands the righteous wrath of God be poured out on us. And that's Good Friday, which was not good for Jesus. Because the righteous wrath of God was poured out on Christ. And he who knew no sin became sin for us. He was covered with our sin. So much so that the father turned away. And Jesus cried out, alloy, alloy, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He's forsaken because he's covered with our sin. He's gentle. He doesn't give us what we deserve. He gives us grace. That's our Savior. Let me read how Matthew puts it in Matthew eleven twenty nine. 29. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. The humility and gentleness of King Jesus is actually what makes some of the text amiss. It's not a miss because it tells us something that didn't happen. It happened. It's a miss because the populace misunderstood what they were looking for in Messiah. Scholars have known this for 2,000 years. For 2,000 years, it has become very apparent that they're looking for a political solution. They're looking for a military solution. They're not looking for the right Messiah. And so they cry out. Hosanna, a Hebrew word that means save us, but to them it means save us from Rome. And they cite Psalm 118, a messianic psalm, but they're interpreting it as a political solution. And they wave palm branches, which rightly today we wave in remembrance of Jesus coming down the Mount of Olives to the Garden of Gethsemane, where he will sweat great drops of blood and he will say, take this cup from me, but not my will, but thy will be done. And he will die for us and will be covered with our sin. That's why we rightly wave palm branches, but they not so rightly. Now Luke doesn't mention the palm branches, But the other three Gospels all do. Uh, Typical is John 12, verse 13. It says this. So they took branches of palm trees, which by the way are all over Israel, and they went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. It was a miss. It was a misunderstanding It was a misinterpretation of who Jesus is. There's a backstory. You really have to know the backstory in order to get this text right. The backstory goes back to 167 BC to 160 BC. At the time, there is a Seleucid that is a Greek king. The Seleucid empire was in every way vile. And the most vile of vile kings is ruling. He is Epiphanes IV. He is a terrible man. Understand what he does. He goes up to the Temple Mount. We're at the second temple, the one built in 536 by Zerubbabel and Ezra and Haggai, the one that will be destroyed by Titus the Roman in AD 70. It's 167 B.C., maybe 169. And Antiochus Epiphanes IV goes up into the Holy of Holies and he takes pig intestines and he throws it all over the Holy of Holies, God's earthly abode. And he takes the altar of God, God's altar. And he sacrifices to Zeus the false God of the Greek pantheon, his correspondent is Jupiter. And he goes into the court of men and the court of women. And he opens up a brothel in the temple of God. And rightly, the Jews' blood boils. And a group called the Maccabeans rise up. They're led by Judas Maccabeus. And for a season, there is victory until they are squashed. In 160 B.C. But during that season in which there is victory. What do the populace do? They sing. Psalm 118. They wave palm branches. And they cry out Hosanna. Hosanna which technically means save us. But they mean save us. From Antiochus Epiphanes the 4th. If you doubt that this is part of Jewish history that is relevant in the text, think of more modern history. The first time the Jews are able to re-mint coins, 68 to 70 AD, what do they put on the half shekel? The palm branch. What do we celebrate today as the festival of lights? Hanukkah. What is Hanukkah? It's the celebration of the rededication and the purification of the temple in AD 1, or excuse me, BC 167, this event. And so when they see Jesus, they're looking for a military solution, they're looking for a political solution, they're looking that Jesus would drive out the Romans, and they cry out, Hosanna! Which, as Christians, we rightly interpret as save us from our sins. And we wave the palm branches rightly as Jesus going into the Garden of Gethsemane. But they were looking for Judas Maccabeus 2.0. That's why Jesus is going to weep. Listen to what Jesus says in John 18:36 about this event. He said, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from this world. He said, if it were, my soldiers, my disciples would have been fighting. We would have found a solution. If the political solution, if the military solution were right, my disciples would be all in. In the New Testament, there's about a dozen passages that tell us as to why Jesus came to earth. Not one of them is political or military, not one. Don't take my word for it, go home and find one. Not one. Let me read some of what the scriptures say of why Jesus came. 1 Timothy 1.15, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. Mark 2, 17, it says this. And When Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Hebrews 9, 26. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once and for all at the end of the ages. Why? To put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. John 12. 46. I have come into the world as light. So that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. John 9. 39, for judgment I came into this world. I firmly believe that as Christ followers and as citizens of the United States, we are obligated to vote. That's my conviction. I believe every American ought to be voted, ought to be registered. I believe that we should know the issues I believe that we ought to vote on all of them. I believe we ought to run for office. But I don't want to make the mistake that they made on Palm Sunday. And that was looking for Judas Maccabeus 2.0. He didn't come to be a political solution. He didn't come to be a military solution. He came to be a spiritual solution. And when we politicize the church, we actually make exactly the same mistake they made on Palm Sunday. That doesn't mean that we are not to engage in political aspects of our lives, of our land. We ought to pray for change, work for change, vote for change, run for change. We ought to do that. But they looked for Judas Maccabeus 2.0. And how did Jesus respond in verses 41 and 42? He wept. He wept over the city. And what did he say? Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. They were looking for a military peace. They were looking for a political peace. And Jesus came to bring a spiritual peace. That's why he came. And when the church got it wrong, he wept. He wept. And then I love the ending of the town. If you were in uh, Pastor Dave's class, you heard the ending already. He's heading down the Mount of Olives. Now picture the scene. If you've been there, you have the Scopus view, and you're looking down over the Mount of Olives. And over here is the Garden of Gethsemane. And here's the golden gate where at one time, not today, you could enter into the Temple Mount. And you're going down the Mount of Olives. And from the Scopus view all the way down to the Garden of Gethsemane, you have a cemetery. 2,000 years ago, you had a cemetery, the same cemetery. There's not a blade of grass in there. There's nothing alive. It's just crypts. It's family crypts. And when you go to talk to relatives in the cemetery and celebrate people in the cemetery, you don't bring flowers, not in the Middle Eastern sun. What do you do? You pick up a stone and you put it on top of the crypt. If you've seen the Mount of Olives, it's filled with thousands and thousands of family crypts. And they're covered with little stones. You can see this all over the world. I've seen it in Berlin. I've seen it in Normandy. You go to a Jewish cemetery out of respect to say that you have come, that you have shown up. You pick up a stone and you put it on the crypt. And those stones are what Jesus is talking about. The Pharisees come to Jesus and say, shut up your disciples. Now, it's interpretive. I think he's talking to the 12, not to the larger group, but that's an interpretive thing. I think the Pharisees are saying, shut up your 12 disciples. We've had enough of them. And Jesus responds and says, I tell you, if these are quiet, the stones will cry out. The little stones that are all over the crypts, all over the Mount of Olives. Dumb, inanimate, lifeless stones have the good sense to cry out in worship of God if we don't. If we don't understand what the church is about, it's about Christ. Christ. And if we turn the church into something other than about Christ and it's not about worshiping Christ and exalting Christ and praising Christ and we make it into something else like Judas Maccabeus 2.0, dumb, lifeless, inanimate objects will cry out in praise of our God. Today is the beginning of a great week. It's the Passion Week. We could treat it like any other week and fail to read through the text and sing our praises, and then we'll need some dumb, inanimate, lifeless objects to cry out. Well, we can remember what this week represents. Friday is not good. It's dark. It's dark, but it's good for us. It wasn't for Jesus. And at least in this service here, Sam and I will do the best we can out of Isaiah 53 to talk about the suffering servant. And other pastors will do it at the other campuses. And then, and then Resurrection Sunday, there'll be a outside service at the break of day that Sam will do. And then there'll be a number of services here that Andrew and I will will talk about the resurrection of Christ and the reason we have confidence in the resurrection of Christ. Because the stone couldn't stop him. The seal was broken and the soldiers became as dead men. And Jesus rose victoriously, permanently, eternally, from the grave and he is seated at the right hand side of the father and he's coming again and he's worthy of our praise and worship. King Jesus is the reason we gather. King Jesus is the reason we praise and sing. Prepare your hearts for King Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, uh, as we come to the greatest week in the Christian calendar, even greater than the birth is the death and resurrection. Our whole faith, Paul tells us, if Jesus did not rise from the dead, we are to be the most pitied of those on the earth but your son rose and he conquered death and he reigns victoriously. And may we spend this week preparing our hearts, worshiping, exalting your son, telling others about your son, inviting people to hear the transforming message of salvation by faith in the risen Christ who took on Sin, our sin, and paid the penalty of sin, which is death, and conquered death and rose on the third day, is now seated at your right hand. We praise you, Father, and we praise you, Son, and we praise you, Spirit. You are worthy three in one. It's in the name of your Son we pray. Amen.